0: All right, It is the week of November 29th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ogier, and today we're gonna to talk about UFC fighter contracts. A new piece examines some analysis from the antitrust lawsuit and focuses on how often a fighter's contract is up for renegotiation or has a fighter has fought out their contract compared to the overall roster. And it's got some quite revealing information in it. So we're gonna dive into that quite a bit in our first segment. Then we're gonna talk about Triller purses. Triller had their triad combat, uh, pay-per-view. I don't even know the name of it, the official name of it. I'm not going to look it up. I don't care enough to look it up. Basically a large Metallica concert, right. Um, with some MMA fights and, and bare knuckle boxing, but the purses for fighters that participated in that event were highly publicized and Made a lot of waves, especially because a lot of guys that were either mid or lower tier or would be mid or lower tier now in UFC fighter pay or other MMA pay, it was quite high for them. So we're going to look at that and also look at, you know, is that sustainable for Chiller moving forward, why they were paid so much, all of that. Then we're going to talk about Kevin Lee. Kevin Lee has been released from the UFC, came as a shock to many, the former interim title challenger and high ranked lightweight being released. Suddenly following his uh, suspension for ADHD medication. We're going to talk about why the UFC did this. And it kind of fits into what I've been talking about on this podcast for quite a while now, I think Kevin Lee is the perfect example of the type of fighter. The UFC is going to start cutting from here on out. Then we are talking about PFL. PFL is talking about introducing a challenger series and more importantly, a pay-per-view model going forward. We'll talk about what that means for the organization following their season three finale. That was not too long ago and whether or not that's viable or how that could become viable for the organization in order to actually have a successful pay-per-view model. And lastly, we have a fan reader question. So I want to thank the fan personally, which we'll do during the segment, but if you have any other questions, make sure to, hit me up as well. I always try and fit questions in when I can. This one is about pay-per-view numbers. Why certain people are drawing at certain levels and are there different types of UFC fans that really lead to these levels? So we're gonna dive into that quite a bit. So with that in mind, timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, so the first thing I wanna talk about today is an article that was published in Forbes magazine by Dr. Paul gift, MMA analytics. If you don't follow him on Twitter, make sure you do that as well. One of the big three in the UFC, uh, business analysis, in my opinion, him, John Nash and Jason Cruz. And he, Dr. Gift goes over analysis that was done by Dr. Robert Blair in the UFC or sorry, Roger Blair in, in the, the UFC antitrust lawsuit, um, uh, where. Dr. Blair is a professor of economics at the University of Florida and had access to over 2,500 UFC contracts because he was a witness for the UFC and was able to do a a fair bit of analysis in terms of how often fighters are either renegotiating, fighting out their contract, or they're a new fighter that's just signed. I highly encourage you to go read the full article. I'm not going to dive into all the details here. That would be a disservice to this article because it's very well written. Uh, Got some great graphs in terms of showing how those percentages have increased over the years, what the free agency overall percentage looks like. But some big takeaways that we're going to take a look at here is, and I quote, according to Blair, free agents made up between 31.7 and 49.5% of the UFC roster in any given year, with the average coming in at 41.5%. In other words, four of 10 UFC fighters Each year, we're either newly signed to the promotion or newly able to initiate negotiations with other MMA promoters. That's pretty big because it really tells that there's a lot of fighters in any given year that are trying to renegotiate, trying to sign with the UFC for the first time. It's a huge amount of the roster, 50%. Uh, Blair also categorized that fighters who renegotiated their contracts during a year, uh, which tended to be smaller, ranged from 226 to 37.8%. So essentially three of 10 UFC fighters agreed to start a new contract each calendar year. Um, They also go into, you know, that this isn't double counting in some instances, or he believes it isn't double counting. Again, highly encourage you to read the article itself. It's over at Forbes. Um, It is titled expert analysis most ufc fighters change contract status every year and that's really the the takeaway from this is that you're looking at a a large number of fighters who every year their contract status changes in some form or fashion some they fight out their contract some they renegotiate some are just signing but it really highlights that when we talk about you know, the antitrust lawsuit and fighters getting locked into long contracts, there's always been an emphasis on bigger stars and bigger names, right? Um, So if you're a Jorge Masvidal after the Ben Askren flying knee or after beating Nate Diaz, if you're a Conor McGregor after, you know, I don't know which fight really sent him over the edge. Maybe Dennis Siver, uh, Siver. I, I don't know. There's, That's a tougher one to think about. But if if you're one of these bigger name fighters that has got a name, Nate Diaz, after he beat Conor McGregor, you're usually locked in or signed up for more fights and locked into that contract. But if you're not, or if you're not ranked, right, in the top 15, you generally are able to renegotiate much quicker. Now, these numbers go from 2008 to 2014, where this analysis was done I think it's probably a safe bet to think that these numbers have only gone up in terms of renegotiation. Um, And the reason why is because, again, you've got so many people coming in off of contender series contracts. And if they make a name for themselves quickly, right, if they're an Adrian Yanez, if they're a uh, Terrence McKinney, although he lost his last one, but, you know, um, if if you're some of these – up-and-coming young guys where you're really doing well quickly you're probably going to renegotiate your contract and be put in for a bump in pay as well as a little bit longer stay because if you get hot right if you are an adrian yanez who then just takes off sean o'malley is a great example of this newer prospect from contender series that has blown up in popularity um if you become one of those guys, they want to lock you in for longer because obviously you're bringing in more people. You've got a bigger connection with the fan base. You probably have a bigger casual fan connection. So with the contender series being there and, and a lot of guys coming up and getting one or two chances, right. Um, or from looking for a fight, I feel like it's, it's more common now than back in 2014, that if you're a newly signed fighter, you're going to renegotiate your contract in a 12 month period. Because you'll probably have fought, you'll definitely have fought at least once, probably have fought twice. And depending on how those fights have gone, you're probably looking to re-up and renegotiate depending on what the UFC sees in you, right? Um, There have been some great fighters or some people that I think are are huge on the regional scene that had tough stints in the UFC where they're gone after two losses, right? Uh, Derek Krantz, older guy, but, you know, a longtime vet on the regional scene, ends up getting signed off of a Looking for a Fight series down here in Texas that I attended. And then his first fight was a short notice against Song Yedong, I believe. And then the second one i forget the second person he fought he had a full camp for that one but it was it was a rough rough opponent as well and and you know he gets beaten and he's gone he's cut um that that's not uncommon we forget there are so many fighters right like 600 ish at any given time there are so many fighters that come up through contender series or through looking for a fight that get a couple of chances and if they fail they're gone It would make sense that if you get a couple guys that win quickly they're probably going to get signed for an extension before they hit free agency because if you had a i don't know cheyenne bays right they pushed her very hard with jp bays and with cheyenne if you had her win all her fights if she doesn't lose to ruiz um, and she's kind of got that marketing behind her and everything. She wins a couple fights. They don't want her to become a free agent and then negotiate a higher pay rate with someone like Bellator that then they're forced to match and really take a gamble with, right? Um, or if they really want her, they've got that, you know, clause where they can match any offer in, in a if if Bellator, makes her a higher offer than she's getting paid in the UFC. The UFC would have the right to match to keep her. They don't want to deal with that. They'd much rather, before she's done with her contract, renegotiate, sign up. And most of these contracts, again, are probably three fights, maybe four, but I'm thinking closer to three. I, I don't know for sure. It would make sense based on what we've seen. So, you know, with how active fighters are, especially newer fighters that are out there trying to prove themselves, trying to do things, Uh, Lupita Gonides, right? Great example there. Uh, I mean, with how active fighters are, it really makes sense that in a 12 month period, at any given time, fighters are, are renegotiating and a large percentage of fighters are renegotiating because you got those guys, but then you've also got, you know, veterans who've been around a little bit longer or who are taking maybe two fights a year. And it just happens to be the year that they're, you know, third and fourth fighter happening. And even some of the longer guys if you're ranked up in the top five again if you've got two or three fights in your contract left but you're knocking at the door of a title shot they probably want to renegotiate before you get the title shot so that it's easier for them to keep you for longer so that you don't you know you're not a in a kevin lee situation which we'll talk about here where you challenge for the belt and then you're a free agent if you lose and you're like, now nah, I'm gone. I'm going to go over to Bellator. I'm going to go do this. They don't like that. They want to keep the rank guys around, right? So it's not shocking, but it it does give you some insight that not all fighter contracts are locked in for huge amounts of time. And the fact that there's renegotiation or there's this large percent of fighters, right? Like basically seven out of 10 fighters at any given time in a year are dealing with contract negotiations, it speaks to some of the fluidity we see with cuts to a lot of the announcements about who you consider not necessarily like hot prospects like O'Malley, but bright prospects, re-signing new deals pretty quickly um, or names that maybe we haven't heard from for a while, but they have a big fight and then all of a sudden they sign a new deal. It, It makes sense that that's happening given everything going on with you know, the the organization at this point, I guess. So keep that in mind. when we talk about fighters getting locked into longer contracted fights, it's usually ranked top 15 and or or champions, obviously. And it's it's still for those upper echelon guys more than anyone. If you're a middling guy, which we'll talk about with Kevin Lee, If you're a middling guy, you might not get locked in for that long. Or you might get cut for other reasons. Because you could be signed to seven fights. If you lose three in a row, they might cut you anyway. Remember, it's a one-way street. The UFC can say, for a lot of different reasons, like, yeah, we signed you for five fights, six fights. But you know what? You're not performing. We're going to cut you. And that's, that's what they want. They want the leverage there. That all of a sudden, if, you know, we signed you for eight fights, you were going to be the next Conor McGregor, and then you just drop the ball and lose three or four in a row, we can cut our losses. We don't have to keep paying you to just get beat up. Right? It, it's a it's a power move. They have all of the leverage. So, important to note, when we're talking about longer contracts, again, it's the higher guys, the bigger names. And that it is still a one-way street. It doesn't protect the fighters if they have longer contracts. And a lot of the new fighters, they're not going to sign them to long contracts because they're not going to want to pay that out. They don't want somebody who's super boring that they've signed, who they think there is a big prospect, and then they're super boring and they keep winning. They don't want them signed for long contracts, where they have to keep them if they don't like them, they may cut them. Anyway, we've seen that happen where fighters have gone out on a win because their contract just ended UFC wants that option. It really gives them more power to have shorter contracts up front and longer as they get closer to a title shot. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. So again, great article. Go read it. It's important stuff. And yeah, just just keep that in mind when we talk about fighter contract length because people always focus on, you know, locked in for that amount of time. It's important to recognize which fighters we're talking about. All right, next thing I want to talk about is Triller Triad Combat purses. And yes, I guess that is the official name, Triad Combat, at least for what I'm seeing, uh, simply because, you know, I mean... I had to look it up for the purse information. So I apologize at the beginning. I made it sound like I wasn't going to look it up, but I kind of had to. So we've got some reported purses for Triller Tri-Combat. We have a lot of fighters saying they made more money. You know, it's their biggest payday ever, right? Frank Mir, I believe, said biggest payday he's ever got. Um, a, a number that we have, right, important to keep in mind that athletic commissions don't disclose these purses anymore, so we don't know it from an objective source of truth. But you know, according to his, Mike Perry's manager, Malkikawa, he came out and said Perry's pay was over 250k. Now, I, I that's tough for me to. I don't know, tough for me to to believe that he was paid that much more than 250K, but even the fact that 250K was the number that was revealed for Mike Perry, right? That that's the ballpark number. We've talked a lot about salaries and pay-per-view buys. Last week, we talked about how you can't trust UFC salaries reviewed. I don't necessarily trust these salaries, especially when a manager saying, you got paid more, it's like, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, it's hard to believe these for sure, but if that ballpark figure is even kind of correct, right? Let's say it's even half. Let's say he got 125000 That's still so much more money than what he was getting in the UFC, right? That's, that's much more money than he was making in the UFC, probably. And, I mean, he had fought in the UFC for a while. He was probably in that kind of middle range where maybe if he wins he could be getting looking at a a 120 160k type thing in 80 and 80 but for just a straight purse in a sport where he's not competed and the fact that he's drawing that now compared to where he's left the ufc so he would probably be fighting you know maybe in bellator or maybe in just regular bkfc um on a regular bkfc show right i mean that's a huge amount of money i feel that the, given what i know about Triller's spending habits which is is albeit very little but what i've heard and what i do know wouldn't shock me if he was paid 250k right if you look at their you know one of the first ever thriller events where they did jake paul versus askrin and you had so many celebrities you had musical groups you had all this crazy stuff going on triller loves throwing money at, at people for the spectacle and they have big backing behind them right you can look at their events and just see who who they're able to get from a celebrity standpoint, who they're able to book from various, you know, promoter standpoints. I I mean, the, it, it it's... They have the money to spend on people like this. Now, is it wise to spend that much money on Mike Perry? That's a different story, right? <laughs> and, and on this particular event. But it just shows that with Frank Mir saying he's gotten like the best payday ever. Uh, Mike Perry also clearly getting paid very well. It it begs the question, is this sustainable? And the answer is a resounding no, right? Triller's pay-per-views numbers have been decent in the past. They certainly have. They've been good in the past, especially when you've got Mike Tyson, you've got, um, You've got Jake Paul, who we know is a draw because of his casual fan base. But in terms of making it profitable and in terms of really, you know, creating this space, this niche space for themselves. How many people turned in to try combat for Mike Perry? Right. Even I mean it's going to be interesting to even just look at the pay-per-view buys for this event, uh, which I have not seen any yet. Although let me take a look right now, five on air to make sure they haven't come out while I am talking about this. It's, it just, it's not smart money management, right? Um, I mean, I mean, you have Metallica playing a f- full show. <laughs> and no, we don't have actual pay-per-view buys as of this recording. But, um, I mean, and, and it's headlined by, you know, Frank Mir, who, you know, God bless him, tries to fight Kubra Pulev. I'm butchering the name, I know. Y'all you, you know me. This is what I do, unfortunately. Um, I... I It's not sustainable, right? It, it's simply not. I cannot see a way that you turn a profit long-term if these are the types of events you're hosting. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the actual pay-per-view numbers are. I did not see a lot of chatter on it, about it on social media. I didn't see a lot of, even in the combat sports circles, a ton of talk about it. I don't think it did particularly well based on those factors, and and some other factors I know of, but I could be wrong, right? I've been wrong before, two weeks ago. Um, but it's, I, I cannot see the justification in paying Mike Perry 250K or more, or even close to 250K. <coughs> I, I can't, I can't. It's making me cough just thinking about it. It's just giving me dry mouth thinking about Mike Perry making a quarter of a million dollars and somehow some thriller exec saying, "You know what? I bet Mike Perry will bring in a hundred thousand buys for us, huh?" <laughs> but it, you know, it's it's a ploy. It's a it's a ploy to get their name out to have a legitimate MMA fighter come in for their MMA versus boxing type of tournament, which was the whole thing. And then you have the triad ring, which was the other big gimmick and Metallica playing. So I get that, but it's still, it's going to be interesting to see what the return on this is because I can't imagine the ROI is going to be well worth what they paid out. If they're truly paying out that much to Mike Perry and to Frank Mir who again, God bless him, but he's way past his prime. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting, but it's not sustainable. It's like any startup. We've talked about this several times with the PFL, with one championship. You can throw a bunch of money at people. You can create and you can find companies that will, for any job, pay you well above market rate. And there'll be a new company. They say they're going to change the world. They'll pay you well above market rate for whatever your job is. They say, come on, be a part of the family, work out all this stuff. That's fine. They'll do that but then they have a runway to make profit. They're gonna be losing money the whole time, trying to get new deals, trying to get bought in some cases, right? And they will, will do all of that to entice employees, or in this case, fighters to come and fight for them. And for the employees or fighters, it works out very well right? I mean, you're getting paid way more than you would at other places. It's all good, but sustainability isn't there. If pay-per-view buys come in for this event, and let's say it breaks a million or something insane like that, then that's a different story. Then, okay, this was totally worth the money. I'm sure they would still taper it down. I don't believe you're paying Mike Perry 250k every time. It's one of their first events, especially their first event with a triad ring or whatever. So you, you don't keep that pay up, but that's, that's part of the early adoption benefits for fighters. If you were a fighter in in free agency and you see something like Triller or you see a new org that has a fair amount of investment money that is just starting up. You want to strike early and first because chances are you will get paid the top amount. And then they'll taper it down because they'll need to taper down costs, all of that as well. But you'll get paid very well for whatever you're doing right if you are anthony pettis and you're in season one of the pfl probably a less competitive field than season three same with rory same any of the ufc guys that came over right brandon laughlin you you're probably not always right but you're probably in a less competitive field and you could probably go farther and make more money if you're in season one of PFL than if you are in season three, because now they have better names. That's part of the reason they signed these UFC vets and and that they're signing more name value guys. Same happens with most things, most startups and most promotions. If you get in early, if you are employee number 10 in a startup and you get equity and you get stock options and you know you're probably as the company grows you're probably then getting a bigger title you're doing all these things it makes a big difference it does early adoption for fighters for new orgs that's pounce on it immediately if you're not going to the ufc and you're not trying to get the belt and make that pay-per-view money and all of that or you're not a big name that somebody like Bellator is going to pay you a ton of money for. Look for things like this, the Triller Triad combat, because if Mike Perry got paid 250 K, think about what Anthony Pettis would get paid. Think about what, you know, former champions or guys who have kind of fallen from grace, um, Cerrone, Donald Cerrone, great example of this, right? If his contract was up and he was done with the UFC, and he still wanted to fight. Think about how much they're paying for Cowboy to go do triad combat. Right? But it's not sustainable long term. They will have to make adjustments. Because even if it sells a ton of pay per view, breaks pay per view records, somebody's going to figure out they're overpaying cost wise. And eventually taper it down. That's what Endeavor did with the UFC. They came in and they said, you know what? We're paying these fighters too much. Let's go ahead and bring it down. It's it at 20%. And doesn't even get to 20% every year. But let's go ahead and cut costs. Same type of thing. Every company, as they grow out of that hyper-growth startup mode, during it, they're much more willing to spend a ton more money up front, but then they start tapering down costs. Then they have to make a profit. Then it's not investor money anymore, where it's just this blank check of $300 $300 million what have you from a bunch of investors or a VC. It's, oh, now they have to make the money. Now it's their profit. Things change. When you make that switch, things change big time. So again, it's great that Frank Mir got paid That much money, especially considering his history and that he's a UFC Hall of Famer, right? Mike Perry getting paid that much? Well, that depends on your perspective. But from a business standpoint, unsustainable. Completely unsustainable. So fighters, if you're in free agency, look for a thriller, Especially when they're new. And especially if they're offering you that type of money. That's all I'll say on that. All right. So let's circle back around a little bit to fighter contracts in a way. And let's talk about Kevin Lee, who should be looking at a Triller, right? A lot of people were shocked by this. A lot of people said, you know, he's still got a lot to give. He's 29 years old. He's definitely stumbled and had issues, right? Um, lightweight was a tough cut for him and he had you know lost a couple of key fights that second ally quinta loss was close but you know i had i had a quinta winning the fight um but it was a close fight and and you know he had some setbacks in that division so then he went up to 170 where he felt better uh but couldn't really find the same success he had and so you know lo and behold. He gets popped for ADHD medication, uh, so he gets to use soda suspension and he gets cut. A lot of people were shocked by this, a lot of people. And the thing is, when you look at when you look at where Kevin Lee fits in and the grand scheme of the UFC's machine, what cog Kevin Lee is it goes back to what I talked about a while ago where the UFC has kind of a new business model where they want to sign a lot of contender series guys or looking for a fight guys for very low contracts and then push them pretty hard to see if they're either a, a superstar or not, B not. And those middling veterans that are kind of struggling and out in that weird no man's land, but are getting paid pretty well, they're gonna get cut. Yoel Romero, great example. Pettis they wanted to resign, and Romero too, right? Um Although they wanted them to fight new guys and it was much more a hey, you have name value, so beat me and you can take my name value. They wanted them to be what Andre Arlovsky is at this point in his career, right? Just bigger name guys where if you get a win over that person, well, it's a big name. And it shouldn't, right? It um, shouldn't catapult you that way, but it, it's always been the case. Uh, Chris Weidman is my favorite example of this recently. Weidman has been atrocious for a while now. I'm sorry, all you Chris Weidman fans. He has not done well on paper and in most fights, but you had... Dominic Reyes fighting Weidman. And the winner was going to get a shot at Jon Jones. Doesn't make much sense to me, but, you know. Reyes beats him and, oh, it's his name value. Go ahead. And at the time, Reyes was undefeated, right? It was a whole thing. I get it. But still, I, I mean, you you have fighters like that where, oh, they beat a big name guy. like, And, and you have journalists do this, too. I, I can't tell you how many journalists I've seen where it's like, well, they beat that name guy, so it's it's a big feather in their cap. They should probably get a title shot or a top five guy next, and it's like, what? It, it doesn't make sense. Um, it, it really doesn't. Masvidal was a great example of this, right? Um, beats Till, which is arguably his strongest win, although, you know, Yeah, I mean, it definitely is the strongest win at the time. Then he beats Askren, who had only beaten Robbie Lawler after, you know, uh, a controversial ending to that fight in a couple of ways there, right? Uh, And then he beats Diaz, and off of Diaz, it's like, well, there you go. You deserve a title shot when Diaz, I believe, beat Anthony Pettis at welterweight, and that was it? I mean, it did... Which Pettis was ranked only because he got a good shot off and knocked out Wonderboy in a fight that he was losing the majority of the fight. You know, it's it's one of those things where name value is big. So if if you are sticking around the UFC, after kind of having those middling performances, they now clearly want you in gatekeeper roles so that new prospects can beat you and use your name to maybe propel you up into stardom. That's what they want older guys for. With Lee, I don't know that they offered him that opportunity per se, but he, again, former title challenger, so you know he made good money off of that as well as renegotiate his contract probably following that probably right before that because that's what they tend to like to do. And then, you know, wins, loss, win, loss, all that stuff. I mean, it, it's the perfect mark for the UFC to cut because they don't want those guys anymore. They either want you to be a prospect, a shooting star or a name-value guy who's going to help a prospect become a shooting star. That's it. That's really the three types of fighters they're looking at, and then the and then the top five of the division, right? Um, that's really who they're looking for. You've got plenty of guys that have been cut. Uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. Perfectly good fighter, right? And I had some struggles here and there, but gone why because he's a middling guy that is no longer really a prospect on the rise and kind of struggled enough with the top echelon guys he's just in the middle he's in that five to you know well five closer to you know 10 to 15 range or you could say five to 15 depending on who he's fighting and all of that and and he's not going anywhere they don't want to hold on to paying fighters like that especially because those fighters are getting more, sometimes several times, more than brand new prospects off of Contender Series on the 12K, 12K. So I see Kevin Lee's release as kind of inevitable. I think he's the first of many. And really, let let me rephrase that. He's the first bigger name of many. They've been doing this for a while. We know that. Go, Go back and look at, recent releases and ignore the names like Romero and Pettis who really fought out his contract rather than got released, but ignore those bigger names and look at some of the other names there. And you'll find a lot of guys that weren't necessarily bad, but just were kind of name value within hardcore fans and, and not doing much. We're kind of stuck between like, yeah, I can beat, you know, 10 through 15, but I can't beat one through eight. Here I am. They don't want those guys. It's a lot of money to pay somebody to be a mid-level gatekeeper. That's not who they want. They want you, if you're ranked, to be, you know, grinding to go up or if you go down to Bounce back in a big way. But you only get so many chances. Part of the cost-cutting measures by the UFC. Part of the reason to keep fighter costs down below 20%. Look at the fight nights lately. People complain about the fights. We've talked about it before. So many cards full of contender series of lower-level guys. That keeps the cost down quite a bit. And with the profits they're posting, it's going to stay that way. So Kevin Lee is the first big name. He will not be the last in this type of situation. I guarantee it. Also, wouldn't be shocked if there's something to do where if you have a USADA suspension, it's easier to to cut someone, right? Depending on how the contract's written. Don't know that that's necessarily true, but I kind of feel like it is based on what we've seen a couple of times. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it sucks. Kevin Lee will still have a lot of potential in other organizations. But it's, you know, his, his advice to new fighters was cherry pick your fights. Couldn't agree more. It's what he's echoed. It's what Sean O'Malley's echoed, right? Cherry pick your fights. Because if you lose too many times and you get this perception of, okay, he's good, but he's never going to be a true contender anymore. Or, He's not a big enough name that we expect him to bounce back in a big way. They'll cut you. Kevin Lee is 29. He's very young in terms of overall career. He could easily have a Charles Oliveira type run, right? Where he kind of reinvents himself and then goes on a massive run, wins the belt. That's what Oliveira did. Go look at Charles Oliveira's record. He was viewed as kind of a middle and gatekeeper guy for a long time. And then he went on the crazy run and won it all. Kevin Lee could have easily done that, especially with the skill set he has. If he could have figured out, you know, especially if he moves down to 155 and figures out a good way to get to 155. But even at 170, if he figures out a skill set in the way where he can, you know, really make everything click, he's got the tools. But he was just struggling and probably being paid too much to struggle in that position. That's what happens. It's how it goes. He won't be the last though. I guarantee it, mark my words. He will not be the last person you see cut being like, why, why? He's young and he's like, it doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't they keep him? Always come back to this. It's always dollars and cents for them. It didn't always used to be just that. Dollars and Cents have always played a massive part in this, but it didn't always used to be just that. But especially with Endeavor taking over and now fully owning the UFC, where they rely so much on their revenue and profits, you're going to see more of this. You're going to see a lot more. You know what? I really like the kid on Contender Series. He had hard-fought battle. You know what? Let's go ahead and give him a contract. And almost everybody gets a contract on Contender Series. And then three weeks later... Eight people released, and wait, who is that on the list? It's going to be a lot more of those moments coming down the line. So just just bracing you because it's, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. I guarantee it. All right. Next thing we have to talk about, unfortunately, uh, and we won't spend too much time on this, but PFL has decided... That they're going to do pay-per-views. There haven't been any specific details in terms of a broadcast partner deal or anything like that, but I mean, they're, they're going to do pay-per-views in 2022. It sounds like, uh, let's see. Looking at the story from ESPN. I mean. We have pay-per-view talent today in the PFL. Peter Murray, CEO of the PFL says. A PFL superstar in a class of her own when referring to Kayla Harrison. Um, uh, It just... You know, and and it's not confirmed where they're like, we are for sure doing pay-per-views, all of that. It sounds like it's, you know... It, I don't know. You get the impression reading the article and in the interview that they're going to do pay per views in twenty twenty two or at least twenty twenty three. It it's it's one of those things where let's say. Let's say they do that. Let's say they make the finale a pay-per-view. Because with their season, they either have to put on a mega event where they hire some people in um, and get some like new blood, like similar to how they signed Pettis and McDonald and other people, uh, Brendan Laughlin, outside of the actual season. And so they had them fight kind of lower-level guys or had kind of showcase fights. They either sign enough of those people to get together a pay-per-view caliber card, or they do something like make the final, the finale of the season, a pay-per-view. Either way, it's, you look at the ratings, and we've talked about the ratings for the PFL, especially last season, and it just doesn't make sense here. The only the only thing that I can think of is that this is a, an angle right where he doesn't fully commit to doing pay-per-views. He says we have pay-per-view caliber talent. Uh, Kayla Harrison is a pay-per-view star, all of this. He doesn't fully commit to saying we are hundred percent. We have a event picked out. We're doing a pay-per-view this year, but he says it in a way that if I'm a potential investor or if I'm looking at something, right? Like, It may make me think, well, okay, maybe he knows something I don't. Maybe he's got metrics that kind of shows that she would be drawing pay-per-views. And pay-per-views, well, that's what the UFC is doing. And look at how much money they're making. If if I look up MMA pay-per-views, right, I'm probably going to find a bunch of Conor McGregor numbers and all these things and start going through and doing the math and being like, wow, this could be massive revenue and all this stuff. It's important to remember that a lot of these investors are not well-versed in MMA. They see it on the surface, they see it as a pure investment, and they don't truly understand it. So you've got a guy pitching a tournament format, which is similar to other sports some of these investors will follow, follow saying, here's the pay-per-view stats, and if you do a quick Google search without doing a crazy deep dive, you kind of see, oh, okay, yeah, you know, pay-per-views can make a lot of money and all this stuff. Uh, it It... Not being fully immersed in the sport so you know this stuff, especially the business side, something like that could entice particular investors. If they truly do their due diligence, it shouldn't, but again, I you know, the investment world is kinda crazy. You will find a lot of investors who do do their due diligence and say, Nope, I'm out and do all that. And then you'll find a lot who will invest in things that make no sense. And they're just sounds like a good idea. They've got the money, they've got deadlines or they do, you know, a light diligence on it and they say, Oh, that looks good. Okay, sure. And they buy into the idea, right? Cause you've got a great salesman in front of them. I mean, that's, that's kind of the investment world. That's what CEOs do. They go out and sell. They sell the brand they sell the product they sell everything that's a lot of their world so it's tough because again you're looking at either either that as a scenario or the pfl really thinks that they can do pfl's or sorry pfl's pay-per-view successfully and maybe they just truly believe like you know okay, our ratings aren't that great, but cable's dying, which it kind of is, and, and they have access to ESPN Plus numbers, right? So that might be higher. So maybe they're looking at it like, we just need to get behind the pay-per-view wall. Like, well, maybe, I don't know. From an outside perspective, it seems crazy, right? I saw a lot of reactions to this, almost all negative. <laughs> um, and, and it's just tough. It, it's tough to see where this is viable. The only way I can see a pay-per-view working for the PFL, where they actually sell a significant number, are with a bunch of caveats. One, it's gotta be way less than the UFC, right? It's gotta be a $20 pay-per-view, like a Ryzen-style pay-per-view price. 20, 25 max, but I would say 20 is probably near max um, for a pay-per-view. You've gotta have enough name value, so you're looking at, you know, yes kayla harrison yes clarissa shields Roy mcdonald anthony pettis uh verdum if you're signing somebody like cyborg you bring them in um but you have some big names and some big matchups and three you can't do it as your season finale you can't because in order to sell that right you don't have your names picked out Probably by the time that happens, if you've decided, yes, the finale is going to be the pay-per-view event, you don't know how the tournament's going to go. It's one of the gifts and curses of the tournament format. As a purist, it sounds great. But from a, you know, pay-per-view star perspective, think about this year. Think if this year's finale had been a pay-per-view. How many people would have bought that? So many of the name value fighters that they signed didn't make it to the playoffs, didn't make it to the championship so it doesn't make sense for you to do the finale again unless you're going to add a bunch of showcase fights to the finale as well you could do that um but then that just makes the event longer and we all know how long that broadcast was and the pacing was just yeah but it's one of those things where a lot of factors have to line up in order for this to be successful. And I just don't see it. I don't see how it could do that. That's the, it's the only way it could be viable is if you really get big names, especially a newer big name, like cyborg or someone with some real casual viewer drawing power in the mix. Otherwise there's no way this thing cracks hundred K. It probably doesn't even get anywhere near hundred K. You'd have to have big names coming in in some form or fashion. But he also didn't commit saying, like, we are 100% doing pay-per-views, right? That's big, too. I mean, he alluded to it. And he talks about the Challenger Series, which is is similar to, I guess, Dana White's Contender Series, which is just, yeah, it, uh, it's just something, you know, to find new guys, which, sure, do that and bring them in on lower contracts, I guess, and let, maybe it's, like, way into the tourney. That's cool. But... I mean, you're still, you know, it says, and in this article, I'm looking again, you know, plans to schedule standalone pay events outside of season format with the hopes of attracting game-changing talent needle movers who want to come fight under the PFL banner on our pay-per-view platform. I mean, that certainly sounds without saying we are doing pay-per-view events 100% next year I mean and, and at least saying the specific events that pretty much sounds like they're doing it and, and you, you, good luck to them and to the investors that are going to back this Good good luck as well but I mean it's one of those things I yeah I don't know y'all I just don't know we'll wait and see see if they've got a rabbit in the hat because man that's it's a no-go for me it is a no-go for me right now but we'll see i've been wrong before prove me wrong again pfl i like you guys prove me wrong again all right so the last thing i have for you guys is a special treat this is from scott mccrite i hope i'm saying that correctly scott who messaged me on Twitter. And again, you can DM me on Twitter at All Day OJ. You can comment on this YouTube video if you're watching it on YouTube. Um, those are the best ways to get in touch with me. Instagram is very hit and miss for me, so I recommend Twitter or that. Uh, but got a question from Scott uh, that I wanted to answer on this. So, Question is, what is the baseline for pay-per-view? How many fans procure every UFC pay-per-view? And if a baseline is say 300K and a non-Conor pay-per-view does 450K and a Conor pay-per-view does 1 million, could that be three levels of fans? The hardcore, casual, casual, plus Conor. Wanted to kind of know a little bit more about that. So thank you for the question, Scott. It's a great question. And I do have an answer for you. So. It's hard to say right now what the baseline for pay-per-views in general is. COVID definitely increased it, I would say, because they did reach a bigger audience by being the first sport back, um, getting a lot of celebrity fans, that type of thing. But, you know, before they went under ESPN+, it was generally around like 200, and 200 300K, depending on who was fighting. But you had a lot of events... Where they were selling around 200k, 250k. Um, I think Whitaker Romero too, which was just a spectacular event, top to bottom. uh, Did around 250ish, something like that, or 300. You know, it was that range. Uh, And then you'd get the occasional super fight; it would bump it up. Um, You had, you know, various super fights. I think DC Stipe did 400k ish, right? or near 500k so you get that and then you had the draws which of course connor million plus ronda million plus john jones 800k that type of thing then you moved on the ESPN plus model and for a while it was much lower than before because you had to go through a single platform so you know very first one was ufc 235 i believe or 236 I forget which one but it was it was the number, I don't remember, but it was Adesanya Gastelum and Poirier Holloway, right? Those were the two main and co-main. That did like 65K or something, which is crazy when you think about those four being in the main and co-main. But it was, again, that adjustment from, hey, I'm going to buy this on my TV. I see ads for it on my TV. I'm going to go ahead and click it, buy, it's all good. To, oh, no, I've got to Buy an ESPN Plus subscription. I have to log into that and then pay the pay-per-view. Uh, you had a lot of people who were kind of old-school fans, been around, older fans, right? Who didn't have great internet. They had cable, so they could, you know, easily buy it through that. But they didn't have great internet connections, so they didn't want to deal with it. You had a very clunky ESPN Plus, which is still still clunky, but especially starting out was just a mess. So. You know, those numbers were low, and then they kind of gradually went up. The baseline now, I would say, is probably around 300K still. It's kind of gotten back to what it was uh, pre-ESPN+, especially with the COVID bump, like 300-ish, 400, 300 to 400. Um, you've also got a lot more people that draw in um, more divisions, I would say, right? You've got Uzman now being kind of a proven draw. You've got Izzy. In middleweight, you've uh, you did have Habib, and you still have Connor, right? Um, drawing in lightweight, my guess is Dustin will draw when he fights against Oliveira. Um, you know, you, you've got a bigger base of stars and and a bigger base of fans, especially with the COVID bump. So I would say three to 400 right now, 300 probably being the good estimate for what the semi-baseline is. You still have bad events, right? Um, Nunes, her last headline pay-per-view was like under 100K or near under 100K or 120, something like that, not great. She's not a not a great pay-per-view draw for whatever reason. Um, you have those scenarios, but it's generally 250, 300, I would say, I'll say 300 is the base. Let's just go with that. Um, So then you talk about different levels of fans and tiers. It's interesting because Lawrence Epstein, UFC COO, said in an interview a while back during the pandemic that they've got a ton of metrics and they actually segment fans into seven different categories, at least. So what you're talking about, Scott, with the casual a hardcore casual plus, it really, in the UFC's mind, is chopped up into far more granular than that, where it's like, probably purely casual, never really bought a pay-per-view other than once or twice, you know, in their life. Um, You've got the people that maybe buy a pay-per-view every year, the, you know, I'll buy a pay-per-view if a particular fighter is on, uh, the you know I will buy a pay-per-view every now and then if I like enough fighters on the card uh, the hard of hardcore on buying the pay-per-view doesn't matter who you're putting on there let's let's go let's do it the I'm pretty hardcore except when you give me an absolute garbage pay-per-view and then I'm just not paying for it you know the, I don't and I don't know that those are the actual segments but that's the view the UFC is looking at it through is at least seven different tiers of fan. And if you ever bought a pay-per-view, occasionally they'll send out a survey. And I've received some, I'm sure some of you have received some, where they say like, you know, how often do you watch? Do you watch fight nights? Do you, How likely would you be willing to buy a pay-per-view at a particular price? They do these surveys to kind of create and mark those tiers and put people into those customer segments. And then they market towards those customer segments. They find what fighters draw and and will get especially the more casual customer segments to pony up and pay money to watch them fight and they push them with marketing that's how they allocate their marketing money so it's much more granular than that you have the right idea with what you were talking about scott but it's and i feel like a lot of people don't know this it's it's much more granular in the ufc's mind they really take a look at a bunch of different numbers Dana White alluded to this as well during an interview where he talked about Chase Hooper's numbers, right? He said, you know, Chase Hooper's fight on the Contender Series, that had so many views, like the most views we've ever had. That's why he's gotten part of the push. They look at a ton of data. They are big on data aggregation to then make decisions. They take it all up, analyze it. And then say, you know what, this is what we're seeing here. We're going to push this this is what we're seeing here. There, There are a firm that follows the belief that big data should drive your decisions. They definitely are. So it's a great question. The interesting part is that in general, you don't have too many stars that hit that middle ground. They either tend to be a Connor or Adesanya type, right? or they take connor's type of of shine um similar to what diaz did and then madrid did to him and uzman they either do that or they're they're maybe drawing for a super fight if if there's a champ versus champ fight going on or a very particularly compelling bout where maybe the B side is a little bit more of a draw than they're drawing, but you don't get a lot of middle ground. You tend to kind of get the baseline or you get the superstardom. Usman going out and fighting Colby and getting 700k buys, you know, he's closer to that Adesanya range. Jones uh, at one point fought Anthony Smith, and I think they pinned it around 550k buys. Like he's kind of the middle range, right? I would say Adesanya right now is your biggest consistent draw, outside of McGregor, who doesn't fight enough except for this past year, where he fought multiple times. But otherwise, really doesn't fight enough to be the consistent draw. So you've got Adesanya as the draw, and then you've got, you know, Usman now and Jones, and then it's it's those three guys, Connor way out here when he does fight, maybe Dustin joins those three guys in terms of where they are, and then it's generally like 300 or lower. It's interesting. It's very, very interesting. But they definitely look at even more customer segments than that, and they're trying to get more people that, will raise their base. I think that's part of maybe why the base pay-per-view has risen as well. They've they've definitely looked at how fighters are attracting those middle customer segments who are kind of semi-casual or might be interested for the right fighter, and they found ways to target them and make them more consistent pay-per-view buys. I, I think that's a big part of their strategy. That's where they want to go. If they're actually hitting their their ROI on that, or not through marketing and other services. I'm not sure. We don't have that info, but I would assume based on what Epstein has said, based on what Dana White has said, that's their strategy is continually find guys that get past the hardcore level and get into you know three or four of those custom, seven customer segments minimum and then raise the overall base of your pay-per-view buys. I think that's the end goal. Right, Because ideally, you want everybody bringing in 800K buys, a million buys. You want everybody to be a Conor. But whether or not they've succeeded in there or not, I'm not sure. But that just, again, gives you some insight into what the UFC is doing. So great question, Scott. appreciate it if you have any more. Make sure to hit me up again. Anybody else out there with questions, hit me up. I'll be happy to answer them on the show when I can. All right, everybody. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, watching whatever you're doing. If you're on YouTube, make sure you hit that like, subscribe, bell notification, drop some comments if you have any questions. Let me know how you feel about these topics. What are your thoughts on Triller's purses, especially Kevin Lee getting released, all that fun stuff, let me know. If you're on Anchor, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, what have you, appreciate you guys listening. Feel free to drop me a line if you have questions or anything at any time. With that in mind, We will be back next week. Uh, Episode will probably be released a little bit earlier next week. I will keep you up to date on that as, as soon as I know more. Again, check Twitter for updates there. But with that in mind, thank you so much for listening. Appreciate you guys supporting this. And until next time, get money.